uh, is a great honor being invited here uh, to this conference. I do think this is the best uh, myeloma meeting in the United States, so it's a great honor to be invited here. So I was asked to uh, give a talk on treatment of myeloma, uh, smoldering myeloma, focusing on the majority of patients should receive therapy. And I think this is actually a very easy debate. And I will walk you through some data here and try to clarify. These are my disclosures. So if we walk outside the building, uh, make a left, uh, this is Times Square uh, in 1980. It doesn't really look like this anymore. So in the same year, in 1980, this paper came out as a letter in the New England Journal saying that we looked through hundreds of patients' papers uh, at the Mayo Clinic, and there were six patients that did not meet the criteria for monoclonal gammopathy. They rather met the criteria for myeloma. But when they were followed over time, five years or longer, none of these patients progressed. So therefore, they say, we wish to call attention to this group. They call it smoldering multiple myeloma. They should be recognized, and you should not treat these patients. If you look in the, at the details here, you see that the monoclonal protein was around three grams per deciliter, and the marrow had very few plasma cells. But because they had introduced this 10% cutoff in the 1978 paper uh, for monoclonal gammopathy, that's made a difference, this cutoff. 27 years later, they were able to prove themselves wrong. So by following these patients over time and collecting more patients, uh, you see here that for patients who actually were labeled as smoldering myeloma, 82% eventually progressed to myeloma. So I think this could be the end of the debate. Uh, you see here that when patients progress to myeloma, obviously they have to be treated. So this is just simply a reflection of the fact that there is something going on, and I'm going to show you that in detail in a little bit. I mentioned that the cutoff uh, was set back in these old papers based on uh, immunohistochemistry, and everyone who has done these types of exercise knows that there is no difference between 10 and 11 percent. Also running these proteins, they are very old. Uh, to try to determine the concentration and say this is smoldering or this is monoclonal gammopathy with this very old technology is probably not really up to date in 2019. So uh, I ask you, are you guys ready? So there is no smoldering myeloma. So either it is multiple myeloma or not. So if you look at the curve here, you actually see three different patterns. So the first two uh, represent the red, early detection of patients who already have multiple myeloma. It's already there. Uh, it's just that the technologies at the time were not developed to pick it up. But if you were to do PET-CTs, if you do more sophisticated testing genomically, you would see it. The second group uh, is an ongoing process uh, where you see acquiring of new driver mutations. So this is progression over time. And then you have the pre-malignant stage in green that mimics the lower part. So if you were to put these patients on the same starting point and plot it out, here you have the red and the blue. These are the patients that do have multiple myeloma. They don't have it in the sense that we think about it maybe today, but they truly have either early detection, if you look a little bit deeper in red, or if you follow them over time. And you can actually see this genomically. So what do we see genomically? Here is a meta-analysis of available cytogenetic data in patients both with myeloma and the precursor states of MGUS and smoldering. So what we importantly see here is that, for example, T414, 1416, uh, hyperdiploid, and also 1Q gain looks very similar for multiple myeloma and for smoldering myeloma, simply probably uh, as a reflection of the fact that it is really the same 
biological disease. It's just not clinically developed as far yet in some patients. I do think this is, in my opinion, the best published uh, biology review of multiple myeloma out there. This is done by Garrett Morgan's group, and I think this is really pushing it with all the knowledge out there. It's a beautiful review. came in 2012 showing that the transition from uh, normal germ germinal center into precursor disease into myeloma uh, can be further characterized by mutations. Uh, there are aneuploidies and mutations and translocation, sorry. But there is also new insight that's being generated, and there are papers uh, in review uh, showing uh, that the complexity of the biology goes beyond the mutations and the translocations. You have chromotripsis, uh, you have duplications, you have biallelic inactivations, you have a lot of different uh, things happening uh, as the disease evolves going forward. But importantly, a lot of these changes are already there in patients with smoldering myeloma. I think this really sets the genomic rationale for earlier treatment initiation in patients who have earlier stages of the disease. So on the left, on the top, you have this initiating event, and then you have different waves of expansion. And the different colors represent different subclones of disease. So when we conduct uh, whole genome sequencing, we can see that there is branching and there's expansion of the disease. So like any other disease uh, of malignant uh, characteristics, we know when the diseases go out of control, they are very, very difficult to treat. That's probably true for most of these malignant diseases. So I think it really sets the stage for a more genomic rationale for earlier treatment initiation in myeloma. Taking us a little bit back to the clinical situation that we are all facing, we are following patients every day in our clinics who have myeloma or if they have this smoldering or even monoclonal gammopathy. And we know we follow them over time. We do blood tests every year. I do think this is a very important study. It just came out in JAM Oncology. We did as a follow-up uh, with the work we have done with Mayo Clinic on the PLCO uh, study. In this expanded study that just came out, and it's online, you can look it up, uh, we identified 159 patients with myeloma, 28 patients with light-chain myeloma. We then screened almost 6,000 people who did not have myeloma. Uh, they were myeloma-free. We looked for monoclonal gammopathy, and we also looked for light-chain monoclonal gammopathy. We identified 281 and 217, respectively, of these two categories. So they are non-progressing monoclonal gammopathy and non-progressing light-chain monoclonal gammopathy. Very importantly, what we have done here to share clinical insight on what happens over time is that we captured also all the previously collected annual samples for all these patients. So we had every year for multiple years before onset of myeloma or light-chain myeloma and over time in patients who have MGUS or light-chain MGUS. And I share with you completely new insights here with you today from a prospective study. Smaller series have suggested this, but this is from a huge prospective screening study. We looked at the uh, matched uh, uh, cases and controls for the myelomas and the non-progressing MGUSs. And if you look at the M-spikes, on the left you have patients that go from monoclonal gammopathy into myeloma, and on the right you have patients that are followed for 10, 15 years without progression on this study. And you see here that the M-spikes, they actually go up for a very long period of time. As you see on this slide, it takes in some cases, more than 10 years for this to happen. 
Similarly, if you look in the light chain cases, on the left you have the light chain myelomas that years before, 10, 15 years before, and on the right you have the stable uh, light chain amygdalas that don't progress. And you clearly see with your own eyes. If you use this information and you do a lot of statistical modeling, I do not have time to go through the details, but the paper is online. We bundled that and we did a lot of modeling and we came up with a score where we looked at the isotype, the concentration, and uh, the light chains. And you see here one uh, point for the first top three and then you have one or two scores if you have one or two suppressed immunoglobulins. Then we assign patients to zero, to one, two, or three or more, so green, yellow, red. If you use these very simple, practical scores, and you look over time, every year in these samples, what does it look like in patients who progress to myeloma? It actually looks like this. On, on the left here, you see the patients that go to myeloma, for the most part, go through this red stage. For the ones that don't progress, out of more than 100 patients where we had these serial samples, they all look like this. There was one patient who had one blip of yellow, but they, the rest of them look like I show you here. Importantly, from a clinical point of view, life is not black and white, we know that. There are, of course, exceptions from the rule. Around 10% of patients you would miss if you only do an annual blood work. They would go from this low-risk signature. But I think it's very important clinical message here. If you look uh, at the colors here, although red uh, precedes the progression for the majority of these guys, Red is preceded by yellow, and yellow is preceded by green. So it can, unfortunately, only get worse. But I think the clinical message is that the risk is not constant. It needs to be reassessed on an annual basis with blood work. And another thing that I think is very important clinically, and that takes us back to the focus of the debate here, is really the issue of so-called smoldering myeloma. If you only look in the blood, you know that three grams per deciliter or more would make it smoldering myeloma. How many of these guys actually reached three grams or higher? It's only 20%. So before this study was done, we thought that you go through monoclonal gammopathy, through smoldering myeloma, into myeloma. But you don't, at least not in 80% of the cases. If you only monitor the blood, you will only pick up a M-spike greater than three grams in around 20% of the cases. I'm sure if you did bone marrow biopsies, you probably would see different things. There probably are more plasma cells over time, uh, but we would not do bone marrow biopsies every year for our patients. So if I were to summarize and conclude, there is no so-called smoldering myeloma. Either is myeloma or not. Using genomics to predict progression from monoclonal gammopathy to multiple myeloma will hopefully soon come into clinic. There are efforts going. There are papers to be published in the coming six to 12 months. And there are already assays that could be used. It's going to take some time to figure out exactly how to identify these patients progressing over time. When patients pro progress to myeloma, I did not show you data for that, but several papers have already found that early treatment is associated with better outcomes. So if I wrap up the debate here, uh, you have the two options. Majority of patients should receive therapy or only a few. So given the fact that the majority of so-called smoldering myeloma patients will eventually progress to myeloma because they have multiple myeloma, I showed you 82%. That is the majority. Therefore, that is the winner. 82%, I think it's the majority. 
uh, when genomic tests soon become clinically available to define patients with ongoing processes with new driver mutations, i.e. progression over time, myeloma will be detected earlier, so that will just drive up that number even more probably, or speed up the clock. And early treatment, better outcome. So of course, I had to add a little bit of a silly slide in the end here. So I know Joe has been involved writing a lot of these guidelines and things. So I was thinking, did I miss something when I went through the literature? Could I find something online? So I looked here, and Vincent published this tweet a while ago about the MSMART guideline, and I know Joe has been active on these as well. So I actually went to look on the guidelines, and to my surprise, there's actually nothing in the guideline on smoldering myeloma. So then I was thinking, hmm, why is that? And the guidelines, they originate out of Rochester. I know Joe lives in, in, uh, in Arizona. But I was thinking, let's go to the headquarters. I took my app, uh, Yelp, and typed in wisdom in medicine, which is what the guidelines are based on. And then I typed in Rochester, Minnesota. And then the Yelp app said, no results. <laughs> so it all made sense to me. That's why Joe comes here to the best meeting in New York in the country to learn about this. I hope you enjoyed the talk, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. So clearly needs no introduction. Joe McHill to argue against. Well, thank you, Ola, I think. Uh, what an absolute privilege always to be here. Uh, one thing I will agree with Ola is this is an extraordinary meeting. So thank you, Ruben. Thank you, Mort. Uh, Mort, you've immortalized, no pun intended, uh, this meeting. It's really been a tremendous piece uh, in the myeloma community. I'm very thankful for that. So um, after the uh, fake news of the last 15 minutes, uh, I'm going <laughs> to... Uh, bring you to make it very apparent that the overwhelming majority of smoldering patients should not receive treatments. Now, I think it is important for me to declare uh, my conflicts of interest. So there, there are two here in particular. Number one, uh, that Ola and I are friends. I think that's very apparent. Uh, we're actually going to have dinner at his home tomorrow night, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, but secondly, that, that there is a degree of denial in Ola that concerns me, that despite the fact that he is literally being punched here, uh, he is smiling. So, so that, to me, already establishes a, a sense of denial and fear of reality uh, when it comes to, to smoldering myeloma. So let me share with you the analogy that I actually share with all of my patients when we talk about multiple myeloma. So myeloma, tragically, is a disease that you, know, that you and I know for years we defined by organ damage. Show me the crab, right? And, and basically, it was like patients were running towards a cliff, but they were not myeloma patients until they were falling off the cliff, right? until you could demonstrate calcium abnormality or renal insufficiency or anemia or bone disease. It, patients would be dangerously close to the cliff, and they're like, no, 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 you don't have myeloma. We're not going to treat you. Uh, but think of it is if I know that a patient or a friend of mine is running towards a cliff, I'm not going to wait until they're falling off the cliff. On the other hand... If the cliff is miles and miles away and they're enjoying their walk or their run, why should I rush uh, to stop them from enjoying that run? So as I've mentioned, historically we defined myeloma uh, as a crab disease based on the end organ damage, and for good reason, because we know there are a lot of individuals who will actually never make it to the cliff. 
Uh, but that, of course, changed more recently when we changed our criteria and we redefined myeloma, where we had AMGUS, as you know, smoldering myeloma and active myeloma, and we chipped away at the smoldering diagnosis. In fact, Ola, I would actually agree with you, as I'm going to conclude at the end of this talk, we are going to eliminate the diagnosis of smoldering myeloma with time. But what we did is we took a chunk, as it were, out of smoldering myeloma, and we said, look, those people that are 50 feet from the cliff, they're so perilously close to experiencing end-organ damage. It would be foolish for us to not retrieve them from the cliff. And this is why, as you know, we added to the CRAB criteria these three criteria of greater than 60% plasma cells, involved over uninvolved light chains of greater than 100, and more than one focal lesion on the MRI of the marrow. Your, your marrow should be homogeneous, but if there are focal lesions, that speaks of activity. And, and this, of course, now has added to CRAB three more features. So now, we, if you will, we have seven features, which my major contribution to the myeloma community, I was speaking to Ajay Chari later, you know, he recently published a New England Journal article, which means he can retire now. Uh, I can retire because my major contribution was to come up with the acronym SLIMCRAB. Um, so this way we can remember uh, that we have redefined. So an important point to you, Ola, is you stated that 82% of those patients developed myeloma based on Bob Kyle's work in 1980. The reality is we don't define smoldering myeloma the way we did in 1980, just like we don't look at Times Square the way we did in 1980. So those numbers have changed, and we have to look at that. So we've eliminated that, if you will, ultra-high-risk smoldering myeloma. The problem is now we're left with a huge heterogeneous population of patients who at one extreme have, as we discussed this morning with Angela and others, a little schmutz of protein that technically gives them an MGUS diagnosis, but they're not really ever going to develop a plasma cell dyscrasia right through people who have uh, more high-risk smoldering myeloma. So, so here are a group of people recognizing this modality that I'm describing, uh, that as long as we're far enough away from the cliff, we're going to be okay. There's one joker here. Um, who's out on the cliff, and, and later I'm going to expand his face so you can see who that person is. So um, if I'm going to share with you seven reasons why I think the majority of smoldering patients are not to be treated today in our new definitions of myeloma, they are as follows. Above all, do no harm. Are we preventing or really just delaying treatment? Um, are we, uh, the heterogeneity of smoldering myeloma is particularly important. What smoldering trials we have, we actually didn't hear about any evidence this morning uh, from trials, but they're flawed, sadly. The interventions we have for smoldering myeloma that you might be told to use are truly not curative. The risk of resistant disease, and as we've both agreed to at least, one day we'll eliminate that category. Now, this isn't just a cutesy catch-all phrase that you learned in medical school. This is very important, and the serious part of my talk is this. For those of you who may remember, we did a smoldering trial years ago with thalidomide in, in uh, myeloma, and some patients very much benefited from it. The very first patient enrolled in that trial, tragically, died of a pulmonary embolism six weeks after starting treatment. Now, that's an N of one, and I get it, but it was a reminder to us that when you intervene in an asymptomatic patient who has a significant likelihood of never needing treatment, we have to be careful with what we're doing. And that is Hippocrates' greatest contribution to us, I would suggest, in medicine, is to remind ourselves that above all, do no harm. It's like me saying, I'm going to treat every pneumonia patient in this country today with an intubation and high-dose IV antibiotics. 
I mean, that's ludicrous for many of those people who have a simple walking pneumonia. That heterogeneity of, of pneumonia is similar to the heterogeneity of smoldering myeloma, and we'll talk about that as we go through. And as we mentioned this morning, based on the work that we through the IMF are doing in Iceland, this is a, a much more common diagnosis than we perhaps initially thought, at least 5%, if not more. And I commented in the Q&A session this morning that, that MGUS may even start in your 20s and 30s. This is not just a geriatric diagnosis. And as we come to understand that, we're hoping, and this is where I would agree with Ola, as we understand the genomics better, we will be able to perhaps discover the driver mutations so that we can truly prevent this. Well, there's a difference between preventing and early treatment. Well, what's being suggested to us in smoldering uh, circles this week and, and uh, in the myeloma community is not really uh, preventing an illness, but we're actually just giving them early treatment. We're using the same therapies, immunomodulatory drugs or monoclonal antibodies. These are great drugs, don't mistake me. But we're, we're using those same strategies in smoldering myeloma, hoping that we have, uh, that, that if used maybe a little bit earlier in the disease course, that they're truly going to uh, change the course of the disease, and we've not seen that. What we really want is that person who's charting their course for the run, we want to have a, a GPS course for them that actually doesn't take them to the cliff, so that their risk of falling off the cliff is lower. Thirdly, we, we've seen the genomic uh, background of this disease. To think of all smoldering myeloma patients the same way and just say, oh yes, I'm going to treat them all. And this was, as I'll show you in a moment, a huge flaw in the clinical trials, is they captured patients, even from Ola's work, who were clearly on the verge of falling off the cliff and people who were miles away from the cliff. And so until we can better define it, I think most of us would feel that that first step we took from going from crab to slim crab was not the last step that we're going to take. As we understand the disease better, there are a few more variables that we think we can pull that line a little bit further. Don't worry, I've got lots of other acronyms ready, lobster and prawns and lots of different ones to capture it. But, 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 but we can definitely, uh, we need to understand that aspect better before we start blanketing hundreds if not thousands of patients that could be treated inappropriately. And this is evidenced by, look how many scoring uh, different uh, systems we have, the Mayo system, the Spanish system, the German system, the Japanese. I mean, this is like the, the, the uh, uh, United Nations of definitions. And they all have overlapping features. And we need ones that ultimately we can agree to. We can't just say, oh, the patient's got an M-spike of 3.2 and they're Capricorn and they like the color green on Wednesdays. Therefore, they're going to be at higher risk. We need to do something that is much more comprehensive and we're working in that. Fourthly, those trials that we have, of which there are two primary studies that I'll show you, a few older ones, but the Spanish study that was published in the New England Journal several years ago, and more recently the ECOG study that Sagar Lonio presented at ASCO and EHA this last year, have challenges. Perhaps the greatest challenge is their inclusion criteria. Many of them were, were include, many patients were included in these studies who by our definition today already have active myeloma by virtue of slim crab. The intervention, as I'll describe to you, the adverse events and dropouts are very concerning. And then of course, what is the ultimate outcome that we should be looking for in a smoldering trial? It can't just be PFS. Because as long as you use anything that is relatively active, you're going to see a prolonged PFS. It's like saying even in maintenance therapy, if you give anything versus placebo, the anything, as long as it's not horribly toxic and has any myeloma activity, it's going to prolong PFS. Well, prolongation of PFS should not be a determinant for us choosing maintenance therapy, and so it should not be uh, a determinant for us choosing um, uh, 
smoldering therapy, it really should be overall survival. And we'll talk about that as we go through. So the early smoldering studies, as we know, showed really no benefit with the historical drugs we used, whether it was melphalan-based, even bisphosphonates were attempted, and we really saw no advance forward. The major uh, initially conceptual step forward was when alenalidomide and dexamethasone was given in patients that definitely improved their progression-free survival and appeared at first to improve their overall survival. But this study, as we all know, is fraught with challenges. In the lack of intervention in the, uh, in the control arm when they did develop disease waiting, as we heard from uh, Dr. Hellengas this morning, if you look, wait for skeletal surveys, you're going to find you have to wait till there's 30 to 50 percent destruction of the bone before patients have bony disease. The fact that very likely a very significant proportion of these patients already meet the definition of active uh, myeloma. And then moving on to um, really when we think about what the endpoints should be, we really have to be looking at true overall survival endpoints, which we have not definitively seen in any smoldering trial so far. So then we think, okay, the most recent study, this is more recent data, uh, those ultra-high-risk smoldering patients that are now true myelomas are not included. Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can see a benefit. And these patients were given single-agent lenalidomide with an intent to give it to them for two years. And yes, impressive improvement in their progression. At two years, we saw that only 7% uh, of those on lenalidomide progressed to active myeloma, whereas 24% in the observation arm. So that initially sounds attractive. But we also have to notice that over half of these patients dropped out because of toxicity. We're going to be treating a lot of patients for a marginal benefit uh, with a lot of risk and a lot of challenge in doing so. And, and no disrespect to lenalidomide, it's a fundamental part of what we do in myeloma, but does anyone here really believe that single-agent lenalidomide is going to completely abrogate the risk to going towards myeloma? Are we really curing myeloma this way or delaying it such that it's really going to affect the full life cycle of our patients? We say all the time that we should be using triplets and more aggressive therapy, if anything, as we heard from Ajay and others today, frontline therapy in myeloma is critical. I sometimes call it the one-two punch. What you give in your first-line therapy and at first relapse is perhaps more prognostic in the life of a patient than anything else. And so we have this modality. We even have guidelines. I don't know if you trust this McHale guy, but, but the, the first ever ASCO guidelines we just published a few months ago where we talk about how important it is to treat myeloma adequately, we're treating these patients indeed with triplet therapy. So if that's what the guidelines are telling us, are we going to sort of semi-half-treat a group of people who are really on the verge of myeloma uh, and, and expect to see an outcome? What I'm suggesting, what we've been launching to do is we look at those highest risk patients that are not quite slim crab yet. Let's start working that line back. If the line now is 50 feet short of the, of the cliff, maybe we could look at between 50 and 75 feet. And we just target that group of patients and we treat them the way we think myeloma should be treated. And we've launched two trials. One, the CSER trial that we presented as an oral abstract at ASH this year, where we're giving very uh, intense, appropriate myeloma therapy with KRD and transplant. Or here in the, and we've already seen early on uh, excellent outcomes from this with overall survival at 98% at two and a half years. And similarly, here in the US, we're doing a similar study where uh, we are doing, giving patients 
uh, carfilzomib uh, Lendex with daratumumab uh, to try and see if we can catch those patients early on with intense therapy and potentially cure. Ultimately, we know right now if we go this LEN path, we're going to have LEN resistant disease. There's a recent editorial from Michaeli Cavo based on a paper I wrote regarding uh, the use of a novel agent, Isatuximab, uh, that LEN refractory disease is a challenge. So I do think the day is going to come where we're going to shrink out smoldering myeloma. But in the present day, it's very dangerous to treat those patients with myeloma. And I would suggest that we have a model that's just been proposed by the International Myeloma Working Group that may look complex, but basically we take four features, the light chain ratio, the M-spike, the percent plasma cells, and the presence or absence of high-risk abnormalities. And when you do this, and I sit with this actually with patients in clinic, and we will look at this uh, carefully, you'll find that actually only 25% meet a high-risk category whereby they have a 50% risk of developing myeloma in the next two years. When we drew the slim crab line, that was our definition. Because if you tell a patient, you got a 50% chance in the next two years of developing myeloma, most people will want to be treated for that. But everything else is a significantly lower percentage. And so that's why I believe the majority should not be treated. And so we can see that really only that high-risk line should, are those patients with smoldering myeloma today in whom I would consider treating them. So back to conclude, who is this person? Oh, it's Ola. <laughs> uh, on the other side. Well, um, uh, C.S. Lewis said, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. Now, I know that Ola has not lost his mind by any means, uh, but uh, the reality is the real disclosure is that Ola and I are actually very good friends. Uh, so I appreciate your attention today, uh, but I trust that you will vote for not uh, treating smoldering myeloma in the, in the majority of patients. Thank you very much.